0: Dudley suffers from a rare disorder combining symptoms of amnesia dyslexia and colorblindness with a highly acute sense of hearing there is also evidence of i'm not that. colorblind am i i'm afraid you are
1: this is film slob welcome to the show I am C.R. Gonzalez, and I'm sitting in my garage with my partner in pod, Patrick Kelly. Hey, man. Today, we're talking about The Royal Tenenbaums, the darling of the early 2000s indie cinema scene, and it's widely loved, sometimes loathed. We'll talk about that a little bit. And I think this is a tricky conversation because so many people love this movie very deeply, and I think Wes Anderson is a deeply kind of complicated filmmaker, in a way. Um, you can unpack his movies in several ways, and I think... There's some sort of inaccessible quality because of the way they look. That's like kind of distracting. Um, and truth be told, this is our second time trying to record this episode. Um, I think for a few reasons, it was a difficult piece to attack. And I think it's because this is an ensemble piece. And this is the first time we've done an ensemble piece. But it's a movie that contains like so much detail and emotional depth that's kind of hard to know how to approach it and rip into it. And I think Paris, Texas wasn't an emotional movie, but so uh, like just one character. And it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can
0: definitely see how much it gets more complicated with, uh, you know, like this huge ensemble cast. And, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and I feel like there's a fire burning in this movie, you know, just mm-hmm. like this unmitigated fire that nobody can put out. And it's like, uh, it's all emotion. Yeah. And I think that it might feel Awkward to kind of j- jump into it without feeling like we're being too like psychoanalytical. Yeah. You know, and like, and we're not qualified for that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, a lot of movie, a lot of people love this movie, but a lot of people hate it. Right? It's like, yeah. It's like you people have strong opinions about Wes Anderson. It's like, you yes. love him or you hate and,
1: him. And that's like a phenomenon I didn't know about. I just thought he was universally loved. I mean, right. I, yeah. Um, but the hate is surprising to me. The hate yeah. is yeah. surprising. I don't know if it's a recent thing or, you know, uh, I feel like sometimes there's the, uh, there's trends and criticism, stuff like that. We were talking about this the, a couple weeks ago about Nicolas Cage and how Nicolas Cage is like on a roaring. Right now he's a good oh, one and yeah. people are, you know, appreciating his skills I think Nicolas Cage has always been a good actor, but I think it's a trend in criticism right now to, to yeah. appreciate his skills.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a trend in criticism um, in general. It's easy to pick on eccentricity, I think. It's, Nicolas Cage is a great example. Yes. he's, he's Nobody does what Nicolas Cage does. Yeah, know? exactly. Does what Wes, Wes Anderson, Anderson does. does. Yeah, nobody yeah.
1: does it like he does it. Yeah. Um, and I think in a certain sense, this is arguable, but I think – Wes Anderson might be like the most auteurish auteur as far as directors. Um, I think he has the most recognizable film style, just at least in contemporary American film, you know, um, I think Yorgos Lanthimos is like a close second, but with nowhere near as much like, uh, attention to detail. Yeah. 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 Um,
0: and it's so distinctive. You can tell immediately, you know, that you're watching one of, you know, a Wes Anderson movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I think, I was thinking about this last night when I was in bed and I couldn't sleep. I was thinking you can probably show someone that didn't know much about movies one Wes Anderson movie and they would be able to pick out a Wes Anderson movie out of a lineup, you know, like a a different one. You know, you show them like 10 other movies and they would know which one was a Wes Anderson movie. You just had to show them one, you know, with maybe the exception of Bottle Rocket. But I think even then, you know, it's it's pretty obvious what he's doing with his style uh, pretty early on. Um, let's talk about some context, some historical context, some cultural context. And I think the obvious literal context for this movie is 9-11 because it came out two months after 9-11. But I don't want to talk about 9-11 again. <laughs> and I think I think we should be like allowed two like yeah. one 9-11 reference per season. But uh, I think this movie also kind of it's, it's not interested in anything outside its own reality. Um, I think it's a very contained movie to what Wes Anderson is doing with it. And, um, our first run through, we talked about like the timeless quality of his production detail and, um, his, his fascination with the themes that like Salinger was talking about in the fifties, mm. very specific to that time. So he kind of takes all these things that uh, J.D. Salinger is talking about in the fifties. He brings them into the modern day and puts them in a modern context.
0: So something that you said that really jumped out to me is, um, Not interested in anything going on outside of its own reality. Yeah. Which I totally agree with. Yeah. The the characters are totally eccentric. They don't seem like real people in a way. You know, like, and he does this in a couple of other ways, too. Like, uh, uh, the mix of styles of clothing and, Mm -hmm. and, um, like, the cars in the movie don't seem to be placed in the right era. Yeah. And, you know, like... you know, not just cars and clothing, but musical uh, choices in in the movie are kind of from a bunch of different eras. Yeah, um, it's it's all just an odd mix, and you don't know if like this is the the real world, and and the characters themselves are also kind of insulated mm-hmm. from any kind of like outside world that we would be familiar with. You
1: yeah, know, it's, like, it's very strange. I think it's a like a. It's Wes Anderson's version of rebellion. Mm-hmm. He, like um Sellinger in his time was very interested in breaking out of like uh, societal expectations and norms and like uh, this this rebellion against like repression and ideology because the 50s were just like this you know a tight-laced time you know where everything seemed so perfect you get like these you know idolistic 50s style homes and families and this is Wes Anderson's like like his J.D. salinger like he's breaking out of these norms you know this is like his rebellion yeah. there's something like a little disconnected about his style and he's like pushing against it. he doesn't really care that it's the right place the right time for this thing or 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 or, or I, I like to think of this style as a um, i like to think of it as an aesthetic of disconnection or escapism where his entire style is just like one step away from reality but also it plays into the characters who are also very often in his movies one step disconnected from reality mm. usually because like a, a you know emotional trauma of some yeah. sort yeah, yeah.
0: And 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 the characters are very much involved with each other. Yeah, it's just that you don't see them interacting with any kind of like outside world. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. To 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 your point about rebellion, like yeah, I would agree with that. Like he's uh, like Anderson's like defiantly his own style. Like yeah, he's like breaking out of uh, a lot of a lot of norms.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think um probably his biggest criticism is that his films are so kitschy that it's distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is, is it's kind of a representation of this, of like putting up this front sort of like this, this emotional hardening, you know, like kind of like putting, putting on a fake face and, and it it might seem like distraction, but, um, all these small details are divulging character. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Salinger does the same thing and there's, there's, um, a lot of, Similarities, especially in Franny and Zoe, like uh, especially about detail. And there's two scenes specifically in Franny and Zoe that remind me of all the detail that Wes Anderson puts into his movies. And there's one where Wes. Um, Salinger is describing the character Zoe's um, like medicine cabinet and his restroom, and he's describing all these little things that he has, like mm. down to the, the the brand, you know. And um, yeah, that same meticulousness. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah, there's a meticulousness, and but you get like a you get a, a taste of what these characters need, what the what they desire, you know, maybe like things they were into at one point, things they're not into anymore, but, and it, like it's a little ridiculous, um, but it, it's also. You get to know the characters better. It brings you closer to the characters. And there's also another scene where they describe a living room and it's very much like a living room you would see in a Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just this like antique furniture, this piano that always stays open. He makes a point, um, the, a certain kind of couch, you know, it's lined with books. Yeah, um, right, right. yeah, it's very Wes Anderson. And oh, I th-
0: and that's a, that's the description of uh, Royal's hotel room in the beginning, right? Exactly. He's got the encyclopedias yes. and the law journals, but like even more than that, he's got Row and row and row of hundreds of, uh,
1: like, uh, mystery novels. Exactly. And this exact thing is going on in Salinger books. And Rani and Zoe is about a family of geniuses, much like the Tenenbaums called the Glass family, who are going through this emotional turmoil because the oldest sibling – Uh, Seymour killed himself and this shadow of Seymour who was like the genius of the family like they're a family of geniuses but he was like the smartest one and he had such an influence on his younger younger brothers and sisters and they're kind of like trying to navigate these emotions that they're feeling because he's gone and uh, like this residue that he left because he left all his books and stuff Mm -hmm. and so they dig through all these things and they're going through like the same thing that he was going through you know they're having these emotional problems they're looking for salvation through Buddhism and it's because he left all this information for them you know like a treasure trove of like who this man was so they're kind of navigating his character through all his possessions which you know you do a lot in a Wes Anderson movie and I think the most like in in that conversation about kitsch and like the criticism I think you people would say that Wes Anderson chooses substance I mean style over substance but I think for Wes Anderson style is substance Mm, mm -hmm. yeah because and 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 it's
0: um it's not like they're not substantial like his movies you know yeah and especially um and for me, in my opinion, I feel it's like he starts he starts to find it with Rushmore, and then the Royal Tenenbaums is where he's really
1: yeah full finds strike his yeah
0: his full like emotional punch
1: yeah yeah, yeah. still his most emotional movie I believe. Um, there's also the context of a certain kind of movie that was happening in the '90s, and it's about angsty bourgeois characters. Um, the movies of Wood Stillman, the movies of Noah Baumbach, but. Um, those movies are about like bourgeois characters who are angsty about their lives and they seem unsatisfied. And the comedy comes from like, well, if, if these people who are well off can enjoy their lives, like what chance do I have? Mm. Um, it kind of reeks a privilege, but that's like the comedy that's in these movies. Um, Wes Anderson is kind of using the skeleton of these movies but he's breaking all the conventions. Um these people like pontificate, you know, they're 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 using like this highfalutin language mm-hmm. and Wes Anderson's characters don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, especially in the Royal Tenenbaums. It's kind of silly and and that also makes them out of place in this world, you know. Mm-hmm. They are a family of geniuses, but they don't they don't they're not very verbose.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean you as as adults, they there's no evidence of genius really in any of them. Right? I mean, yeah, they're just kind of normal people. Yeah, other than them existing in this strange little bubble. That yeah, they're in.
1: yeah. If you uh, if you knew them outside the context of, the, of this film, you would you wouldn't think they were geniuses, right? Yeah. Um, I also wanted to talk about like the one note characters and Wes Anderson uses this in all his movies where all his characters, are like one note, you know, mm. usually wearing the same outfit. Uh, just, they just act the same way through the whole thing, especially Chaz in this movie. Who's very one note in this yeah. movie, yeah. but they all are in a certain way. And like Pagoda comes to mind, the one note character. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. this is all one note. And I think Wes Anderson means to like, these characters to form a chord, you know, Mm -hmm. and all these one notes form a chord. And this is like the, the, the key that the movie is in, in a, in a sense, you know, and, and and that might sound abstract, but I think all these different one notes definitely create a, a very like solid tone in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's like a chord. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you, Um, do you have any like first impressions about this movie or is there anything else you wanted to say about setting the scene or cultural context?
0: Yeah. uh, First impressions. I think uh, this was my I think the first uh, Wes Anderson movie that I've seen yeah, um, or that I had seen when I, I saw it when I was a teenager, but um, I think it was the first thing I s- uh, saw of his. Uh, how about you? Did you, this is, was this the first one? That
1: you I saw? can't remember if it was this one or Rushmore. I just remember it being like very just, it, it left an impression, left a huge yeah, impression. Yeah. It kind of, it kind of changed the way I watched movies. It kind of made me realize what was possible with movies. Um, and this was yeah, like, it was to- something totally new, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Anything like it. And, and these are yeah. very formative years for me. You know, mm-hmm. I was, I was still in high school in 2001. Um, and I, I, I remember I would make my brother take me to Pasadena to go see movies at the, the, you know, the, um, uh, in Pasadena. Yeah. um, yeah, I would like I would make them take me see movies, and this was like happening at the time. You know, I was out there watching Motorcycle Diaries or Little Miss Sunshine or you know Royal Tenenbaums or something like that. Oh, nice. yeah. um, and this is like a very formative time. It just felt like such a cool thing. You know, I felt like I was hip or like an artist. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I really like fancy myself an artist at the time. And so it, it it left a mark. It definitely left a mark.
0: Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I think uh, I don't. I'm not sure if the Royal Tenenbaums is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. I think. Um. I think that might go to. Uh, uh, maybe Rushmore still. I'm, I'm really, yeah, I really like Rushmore. Yeah.
1: Um, well, we'll, we'll, we'll put him in order later for sure.
0: Yeah. As far as setting the scene, there's a little background on, on Wes and Anderson. We want to talk about,
1: um, yeah, hit me with it.
0: Yeah. So he, uh, found success like pretty young in his career. I think by his mid twenties, he had, uh, um, he had sold this and, um, got it, got it made. Right. I think yeah. released maybe by his late twenties, but, uh, he went to University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he was a philosophy, uh, philosophy major there, and um, that's where he met Owen Wilson. He was mm-hmm. in a playwriting class with him, mm-hmm. um, and they uh, they weren't actually, like, friends in that class. They didn't talk to each other in that class or anything. It was, like, a small class. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they never talked to each other, and uh, but I think uh, I saw this in an interview that uh, Anderson... Liked Owen Wilson's style because he would like just brazenly read a newspaper <laughs> uh, like while the professor was talking in this very small class of like only nine people or something. Yeah. Um. But uh, they ran into each other uh, sometime after that class and uh, um became friends. They started. They found a mutual in- interest in, in books and movies and um they uh, became roommates. Yeah. And uh, that. I think in that apartment, they co-wrote bottle rocket. Nice. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, like when, when I first saw, uh, the world bombs I had probably already seen a bunch of Owen Wilson movies where he was like the lead in these like buddy cop movies and yeah. you know, big Hollywood like comedies. Um, so he had like made it already by the time. Yeah. He was really popular.
1: Yeah. I was super into his style, especially Zoolander. I think that came out the same year. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: so he kind of like, as I think as soon as like bottle rocket took off, then Owen Wilson took off too. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't know this, but Owen Wilson co-wrote, um, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and The Royal Tenenbaums with uh, I was, yeah. Wes Anderson.
1: I was thinking that newspaper thing is very Max Fisher and Rushmore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- <laughs> I think
0: uh, Anderson and and uh, Wilson both put a lot of themselves into Max Fisher. Yeah. Um, but uh, have you
1: ever seen Shanghai Noon? Shanghai Noon with, uh, with Jackie, Jackie Chan? Chan.
0: I think so. Oh my god, yeah. I used to love that movie. <laughs> He did not say I like your moves in that.
1: One. Or is that Starskin Hut? That's I like your moves. I like your style. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, yeah, Shanghai Noon is a classic for me. So,
0: when uh, Owen and Wes wrote Bottle Rocket, it, um they they made it as a short film. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, I think it was Owen Wilson's older brother, yeah. who also appears in the Royal Tenenbaums, and yeah. he's uh, he's a, a bigger role in Bottle yeah.
1: Rocket. I think you can see it on YouTube. Maybe it's a black and white. Uh, y- yeah. yeah, it's very similar to the beginning of Bottle Rocket.
0: Um, he has some connections to the film industry, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and I think he was the conduit for getting Bottle Rocket into the industry a little bit, and like mm. getting getting it in front of eyes. Yeah. And, uh, um. LM Kit Carson took a liking to it um, who is uh, you know connection to Paris, Texas he was a producer and uh, co-wrote that screenplay with Sam Shepard yeah Um, so I thought that was kind of cool that LM Kit Carson has a as a hand in, in the early development of
1: West Anderson. Yeah. We seem to be like on this like string yeah. without even realizing it, yeah, you know, weird connection. Yeah. There's a lot of like connective tissue between the movies that we've been covering and they all just seem so dissimilar on first, yeah. on first viewing, you know, yeah. um, can we talk about what this movie is about? Yeah, let's do it. Excellent. Um, I think, I mean, it's really obviously about Royal and the kind of character role is. And, the effect that he has on his family yeah and um there's so many scenes where this idea gets compounded and um i want to play the first one have you told your children more or less and are they all right
0: it's hard to say
1: who's your father his name is royal tenenbaum he told us he was already dead yeah well now he's really dying ready Ready? i'm
0: very sorry margot that's
1: not actually related
0: anyway. True. would like to send a response, please. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Dear Mom, I received your message. I'm coming home as soon as possible. Who do I see about that?
1: So if you pay attention to the details in that scene, each of the children have a very, very distinct reaction mm-hmm. to this news that their father is dying. And I think so many scenes in the movie it kind of just, it just keeps nailing this point home that Royal did this to this family mm-hmm. and he affected him in so many ways by the way he treated him. And you get that in the flashback in the cemetery scene, um, in like their separate conversations and the way they interact with people around him. Um, Royal's at the heart of this and he, I mean, he's a villain. Yeah. Yeah. I think Royal, Royal is the villain in this movie.
0: Yeah. He, but he gets the redemption, right? Yes. Yeah. Is, which is, uh, but you're right. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's terrible. He's manipulative. Um, yeah. He's, uh,
1: he's, 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 pretty he's a racist with, he's, he's, with, with, yeah, he's yeah, racist. Yeah. Henry Sherman. With Henry there's, Sherman. Yeah. There's so many like yeah. microaggressions, like calling him a grizzly bear or he yeah. calls him like raggedy, like raggedy? What? Like, right. <laughs> this guy's kind of, like so well put together. He calls him Coltrane. Yeah. He <laughs> calls him, yeah. Which is like yeah. obviously like the most blatant one, but he does it over and over again. And he does this thing with his voice every time he talks to Henry Sherman where he takes on this affectation of like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Put it here, my man. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And he <laughs> yeah. does it every single time. And if you right. really paying attention, it's just like constant and consistent. And it's like, Oh my God, like stop. And he's yeah. also, uh, I think like a really funny thing and like a fine detail is that he could never admit that it was his fault or mm-hmm. he, like he was wrong. Like when he's walking in the park with Ethel, when he says she has more grit and guts. He's it, laying it on thick. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's laying out on the charm thick and he's like, I'm sorry. And then he says, Well, it's nobody's fault, really. Right. right. You know, but no, like clearly it's your fault, Dick. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so going back to that scene you just played, Chaz, uh, the way Chaz reacts to it is interesting. The way he reacts to the news, right? And yeah. the way you see him react to the news, he's on the phone with his kids, right? With yeah. Ari and Uzi. Mm hmm. And, um, how, how does he react to that? It's, it's a way it's in a way that's very similar to, to
1: Royal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's emotionally hardened and he, he, he lies to his kids. Like he's like manipulative yeah. in the way, like, yeah, maybe he might, it might be for the, like the, what he sees as like the greater good of keeping Royal away from his kids, but he manip- manipulates them in like similar to a way that Royal manipulates Richie when he tells mm-hmm. them, you know, I'm, I'm going to live. Richie, this illness, this closeness to death, uh, has had a profound effect on me. I feel like a, a different
0: person. I really do. Dad, you were never dying, but I'm going to live. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those those two uh, those two scenes are very, very similar. And and uh, um, we had kind of talked about this yeah prior to recording, but it was I had never made the, that connection really before that yeah. uh, Chaz does the same kind of thing and it's on the same exact topic it's about royal dying yeah uh Ari and uzi say um i thought he was already dead and Chaz yeah. doesn't acknowledge the lie yeah he's just like oh well, now he's really dying
1: yeah like you, you know? said he just like uh he just like updates the truth yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> which what royal does he like kind of finesses his way around the truth um in just such a way so it's classic narcissism, you know, and uh, like, I don't want to get too psychoanalytical about it, but if you know a narcissist, you know, that they, they can never admit right. that they're wrong and they will like just finesse a situation in such a way. So they're always the good guy, you mm-hmm. know? And I think Royal very much sees himself as like the hero or the one who's being wronged. Um, when he talks about Henry Sherman she's like, he's like, I didn't think I like, you know, even if I couldn't get you back, I just thought I can get rid of him, you know, right. at least keep the status <laughs> quo. Get rid of Henry. Yeah. 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 Um,
0: and, and how does Richie respond to that news? He, He's, uh, well, he just wants to run
1: right back and. Yeah, I they guess, had like, like a very specific relationship, and I'm gonna yeah. play this clip.
0: What? Well, you probably had another good two or three years of competitive play in you. Probably. I had a lot riding on that match, you know,
1: financially and personally. Why'd you choke out there that day, Bummer? Mr. Gandhi
0: leads 40 15.
1: 72 unforced errors for Richie Tenenbaum. He's playing the worst tennis of his life. What's he feeling right now, Tex Hayward?
0: I don't know, Jim. There's obviously something wrong with him. He's taken off his shoes and one of his socks. and Actually, I think he's crying. I think you're right. Who's he looking at in the friend's box, Tex?
1: That's his sister Margo and her
0: new husband, Raleigh Sinclair. They were just married yesterday, Jim. Oh, yes. Uh never seen anything like this. Neither have I. Strange day out here at Windswept Fields. <laughs> by, by the way, that part always makes me want to laugh and cry.
1: Yeah. It's like, <laughs> my favorite he, thing is he's when he crying. throws his racket. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> tired of this shit. Yeah. But Richie is the youngest, and he's like the most easily manipulated out of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, and often he's, he's framed with Uzi and Ari in a single frame. Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, kind of comparing them um, with this kind of you know like malleability you know they're just so easily influenced you know yeah.
0: well royal's doing the same thing with Aryan news yeah exactly richie did when he yes, was a kid yes. yeah he was he's taking them out to the yeah. dog fights
1: and yeah that, it's classic when he's standing at the scene and and he he asked him like uh he asked him i forgot which question but he's like oh you don't have to answer kind of a fuck you to the old man you yeah. know like he's like <laughs> yeah. playing with them like he's trying to make them feel bad when they're like fine you know right, they're like right. fine with what he's saying to them um but Yeah. uh, Richie just like jumps at every opportunity to please him. Yeah. 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 And,
0: uh, and what, what's so interesting is that flashback of like the worst day of Richie's life, Yeah, you know, like he's on television having a meltdown. Um, uh, you know, Royal does ask like, why, why'd you, why'd you melt down out there? Yeah. Um, but But
1: not that he's concerned. Yeah. And and
0: Richie doesn't even offer details. He's like, it's fine. You know, I, I know you were, you know, you don't handle disappointment. very
1: Well, and it
0: it, kind of like turned it around and started consoling Royal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like he was apologizing for him. Like, you know, yeah, this is my fault, my bad. And I think it's like really fucking funny that had they like just any interest in their own children, they would have easily realized that Richie was in love with Margo, like all these Mm. paintings all over, you know, like, like he, he was breaking down on the day she got married. Like, I think it was so obvious. And I think, um, they're they're kind of like playing with that, like how they're just like kind of uncaring, like with Ethel and Margot in the tub when she goes, "Well, so am I." She's like, "So are you?" What you know? Right. Like yeah. they're just like a completely oblivious to like the needs of their children, which is something that happens in Franny and Zoe, where the parents just kind of they either don't take like uh the the emotional plight of their children seriously or they're just oblivious like the dad keeps on saying like oh do you want a tangerine like (laughs) like just have a tangerine like a tangerine like just like (laughs) that's a thing in the book where where we're just like stop talking about fucking tangerine (laughs) 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 um but um i think richie is like really just taking the brunt of of all this like abuse and um Mm -hmm. you know he, he, he's obviously like driven just like to his like very limit and that comes to a culmination in the suicide scene Um which well listen I
0: swear in your clothes head down to toes a reaction to you you say you know what he did but you idiot kid you don't have a clue
1: sometimes they just Now, I know that's just music, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, he's staring into the mirror yeah. with a
0: half-shaven face and yeah. says, uh, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow.
1: Yeah, and, not, and then just slits it. Yeah, not only is that jarring because of what's happening in it, but it's jarring because stylistically that is completely different from anything else in the movie, but also completely different from anything else Wes Anderson has done like prior or, you know, since, um, that move, that, that song needle in the hay by Elliot Smith is the most contemporary song in any Wes Anderson film. Mm. Um, it's an eerie fact that uh, Elliot Smith killed himself tears after this, you know, makes it more mm. haunting, but like stylistically, like that blue hue is just like something that doesn't happen. I think it happens in the life aquatic during, the shootout where the the screen goes like a red or something oh, like that. Oh yeah, and you yeah
0: is is that where uh, uh I think I'm thinking of a different scene where you zoom r- real close in on Bill Murray's face and you see his eyes. Oh I no, that's, that's a different when, scene. Yeah, I think that's when Esteban gets. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but but it's
0: another moment like that, you know. Yeah, I, and I think this is um uh like the first time he's done something like this. I don't I can't remember anything like this in Rushmore or
1: uh yeah he just doesn't go here anymore, which like gladly because this is fucking heavy, but it just works so well in the context of the movie movie and another thing is like the camera when dudley walks into the like the camera's like very loose and handheld you know mm-hmm. which is like it's so slight not, but fucking yeah. jarring in, yeah. in the context of this whole film because right. it's so well controlled
0: yeah that's not what he does really i mean he, a lot of most of his shots are meticulously planned and yeah symmetrical and yeah um, the the cut twos are like very uh sorry i hit the microphone there <laughs> but the cut twos are very like controlled, right? yeah. Like at the at a at a very particular yeah
1: and radius and like all that and and like you can't even stay with it for too long. Like you get that go back to Dudley, Dudley screaming. There's no sound, and then immediately it's like a very symmetrical shot of them running yeah. with Richie like on the gurney like, right, <laughs> like right. through the hospital.
0: Yeah, and uh, and the, like the faces are kind of deadpan. Bill Bill Murray's got no, yeah.
1: no expression <laughs> like on his very face.
0: Stoic. Dudley's got no expression on his face, and they're just running him down the like the gurney on the down the hot down the aisle.
1: Yeah, and. Do you have points about Mordecai that we should talk about?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, this scene is is interesting because it ties Mordecai into into um, everything with Richie's character. Yeah, um, when Richie is staring into the mirror and saying, uh, "I think it's," I can't remember if it's before or after he says he's going to kill himself tomorrow. Uh, There's a sequence of images that flash. You see Mordecai, you see um, Margo, you see Mordecai again, Uh, you see Royal, you see Mordecai again. So it's like Mordecai, you know, in there flying. Um, And uh, I think what that that means to me is Mordecai is a symbol for all of the uh, relationships that Richie has with uh, the people that are closest to him that are very flighty people that... Mm -hmm. that, um, are, are not reliable mm-hmm. in, 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 many senses. Um, you know, Royal Margot, Eli, uh, all these people that Richie kind of, you know, yearn to have strong relationships with. Yeah. They, they're just kind of not there. Um, and, uh, I think Mordecai ties into Richie's character in other ways as well. Um, Uh, near the end of the movie when he comments on the white feathers Mm -hmm. and uh, how he, you know, you know, tells the the story. You know, I've, I've heard that trauma that they can. Yeah. Like, like a person's hair can turn gray after they've gone through a traumatic event. Maybe he went through something. Yeah. Um, You know, and I I think that there, there's another layer of this too, that, that, um, you know, that, that, visual physical transformation with uh Richie's look, you know, cuz mm-hmm. he had the long hair and the beard and the sweatband and the glasses, yeah. and the very um very signature look of his that he had, you know, not the beard since he was a kid, but like mm-hmm. even even when he was a kid, he wore that suit, and the sweatband and and all that. Um I think uh I think wardrobes, um, we can come back to this a little bit later, but I think wardrobes play um a huge like, visual symbol in, yeah, in this movie. Yeah, they
1: definitely can't be ignored. Um, yeah. But in any West movie, it's like the uniform for the character. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about Margot. Um, Margot, do you, th- do you think it's uh, significant that uh,
0: she's the playwright? You know, she's like Max,
1: I, she's I think, the playwright? Yeah. yeah, I think it, yeah, it has to be. Um, maybe, I don't know if they feel like closest to Margot, but... Yeah, it's weird, right? I think maybe it's like the, the writer's attempt to feel close to Margot. Like, we're, yeah. you were talking about the first time we did this about like, you know, they probably didn't know much about women. And so like the, the easiest yeah, way to yeah. write a woman character is just like make it me. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what's emblematic of that is
0: like that she's still so mysterious and distant and, yeah, you know, inaccessible. Yeah.
1: And I, I think there's like a lot of stuff you can like break open about Margot. She's, she's gone through a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to jump into it too deeply. Like I said, we're not qualified to like be like super psychoanalytical about it. But if you just look like at the broad strokes of her situation, um, she's all obviously looking for fatherly love. you know, she's dating Raleigh and he looks pretty similar to Royal. Um, I think she's also, she also doesn't feel like she deserves like some sort of like real love, you know, like this, 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 this real thing. And I think you see that when she gets involved with Eli Cash, mm. who 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 is the, the 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 kid across the street who always wanted to be a tenen bomb. You know, he's a stand-in, and and he's a stand-in for Richie, right? Yeah, he's, he's a stand-in very, for yeah, yeah he's a stand-in for Richie. And Eli's also taking the brunt of this trauma just just by simply wanting to be a tenen bomb. Like Richie is like the example of like what happens to anybody else. You know, if you're not a tenen bomb, like yeah, if you if yeah. you just like experience this much trauma from being part of this family, mm-hmm. um, so. It's it's Margot accepting like this kind of like love of the stepbrother like just like something like a step removed from the family you know, um even when she she loses her finger you know she has that fake wooden finger and she's just like okay with that like Mm. she's like it wasn't even worth it just to like put it back on you know like she feels like she doesn't deserve whatever you know the the real thing you know you know to 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 to, she doesn't deserve what she wants yeah
0: you think uh, uh, Eli is to Richie what. Raleigh
1: is to Royal as far as yes. Yes. And I think there's a lot of of that happening in this movie of like characters being analogs for different characters. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the tie in is just like this emotional incapability, you know, and that's why um, and it's also tied to to children a lot. And and this is like a a pretty like a a theme that's prevalent in West Anderson movies is that, you know, um, the children's are the, uh, the children's, (laughs) the children are like the more emotionally like adept characters and it's the adults acting like children who are just like not doing well, you know, mm. but there's always like a, a sharp child, you know, in a Wes Anderson movie, he, 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 he just get, keeps on using this. Yeah. And, um,
0: yeah, Ari and Uzi are certainly like, the, you know, they're like that. They, they, they're the ones that are able to, um, I guess, gain the relationship with Royal by letting Royal manipulate, you know, I mean, I kind of defeated yeah. my own argument there because <laughs> Royal manipulated Ari and Uzi. Into, yeah, into yeah.
1: Chaz. But it is an yeah. analog. There's an analog like comparison happening to Richie and Arya and Uzi, mm. um, which brings me to Chaz. And we were talking about this. So Chaz, Chaz has just like been emotionally hardened. I think the arc of Chaz is that he's turning into his father. and mm. um, And it's... I think... I think more than that, I think what what the character of Chaz is telling us is that, like, we are, like, there's trauma everywhere, you know? Mm. And I think you look at Chaz and it allows you to feel sympathy for Royal. Like, you understand that Royal probably has his own bullshit to unpack. Royal probably underwent trauma himself. That's why he's, like, so closed off and hardened, you know? Yeah. And that's, like, the, the great, like, um what do you call it? Like, the, the great whenever it comes to like the great equalizer, that's uh, what I meant yeah, to say. Yeah. The great equalizer is like, you know, like, like trauma. Yeah. The that, great equal equalizers that we've all been through shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think I had a, I, I think I have a hard time kind of uh, relating to Royal in this or like feeling sorry for him or empathy. But I think, I, I think if you really like take a close, like he, he deserves it, you know mm. um, maybe, you know, not the, the, the best father or you know the best character but I think I think if you've had like a contentious relationship with your father which I think is probably everybody that this movie fucking hits um,
0: and, and what's the what's the turning point for Royal because I think there is a definite turning point there in the movie there is a turning Royal, point yeah like
1: I, I think there might be a couple but yeah. this is the first one I think you know something don't listen to me I never understood her myself I never understood any of us
0: I wish I could tell you what to do, but I just can't. That's okay. No, it's not.
1: You still consider me your father? Sure, I do. And I think that's the first time Royal vo- vocalizes that he feels a difference, that he feels a change, that he realizes things have changed. There is one, men- there is a turning point before this, but this is the first time he vocalizes. Um, Like, exactly what's happening, like, the dynamic, you know? That he doesn't understand his children, and that's all right. And this is, like, probably the first time in the movie that he admits he's wrong in a way.
0: Exactly. And there's two things I hear there that you don't really hear from that character Mm -hmm. until this point in the movie. And that's, like, genuine humility. Like, he doesn't know the answer. Yeah. And uh, genuine compassion with no manipulation. Yeah. You know, and he's, like, giving all of that to Richie. And I think
1: that is the the turning point. Yeah. And I, I think... And this ties into to talking about Royal and the trauma that he's undergone. I think Royal has also hardened, and he, he kind of keeps his family like at arm's distance. Yeah. And I think in trying to manipulate his family, he accidentally let them in, and they've affected him emotionally. Right. And this is right. his arc. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a moment uh, earlier when he's getting kicked out of the house, right? Yes. Like the, at, the, yeah. the jig is up. Yeah. Like, yeah. Let's, yeah. Here it is. Look, I know, I know I'm going to be the bad guy on this one but I just want to say the last six days have been the best six days of problem my whole life. Immediately after making this statement, Royal realized that it was true.
0: He's such, he's so used to slinging bullshit that like, uh, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't realize that that was, Oh shoot. That was true. Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. And I think that's purely accidental, but it affected him. Like, you know, he was trying to get in there and change his family. His family changed him, which is, like, a corny thing to say, but it's done really well in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like, he, he was just, like, so, so close off emotionally. He had, he, you know, it makes him an empathetic character overall, you know? Um Did did you hear that um Wes Anderson wrote this for
0: Gene Hackman?
1: Yes, that, and Gene uh, Hackman fucking hated was, that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, it was very hard to get, Yeah. Like- um, and uh, he actually, Gene Hackman actually had to talk to his family before taking this role because yeah. he had he was like, had a similar relationship dynamic with his kids. Yeah, and they would he thought that they would feel uncomfortable about him doing a role like that. Yeah, um, and so he was like, you know, Gene
1: Hackman to, was like, he hates when people write for him because like he he's his his point of view is like, you don't know who I am. Right. And Wes Anderson, I love this. If you watch the documentary that's in the cartoon specials. Um, Wes Anderson was like, "I'm not writing you. I'm writing a character, character that I think you, you can you. play."
0: Yeah, <laughs> but it's like it's hitting a it's hitting a sore spot. Yeah, him. <laughs> like he is getting too close to home. Um, that's funny. Uh, and Alec, Alec I just want to comment on Alec Baldwin's narration. Like mm-hmm. he was born to narrate this movie. Like, you
1: know, oh so yeah, flawless. Yeah. Um, there is that point also when Royal. Royal saves Uzi and Ari from being hit, you know? Mm. Um, and I think to Chaz, like you saved like the last thing that I, you know, that I love. Yeah. And that's like a really big turning point for Chaz. And he, like, he decided, like, I can't, I can't be like, I can't be closed off to this. You know, you just did something really special for me. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of just like wraps this up like very neat, like very neatly.
0: I love them redoing that shot with Ari and Uzi and Royal at the garbage truck. But then you see Chaz come out from the back, you know,
1: yeah, like, that, like yeah, he's, he's, he's joining in on the front. <laughs> all yeah. fucking chipper. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, and the line, um, I had a hard year dad. Oh yeah. Which gut is punch. like a fucking gut punch. Yeah. I think that's the most powerful line in this movie. Mm-hmm. And like I said about, you know, I was talking about like contentious relationships with their father. And this just reminds me of this time. Um, it's probably, no, no, this is a couple of years later, but when I was 20, I was, well, I'd left my house slash kicked out and I didn't talk to my dad for like close to a year. It was like eight months. Just like, it was just like rough. Like this is yeah. the first time I have been out of my house. I was really close with my little sister, Stevie, who, you know, um, and it was hard. It was just hard being away from my family. And like, and although like, I felt like I hated my dad at the time, like it was just hard to be away from there, you know? Yeah. And, um, I was dating this girl at the time and that ended really badly. It was like this really terrible night ended a night all went down. It was like in a blaze of glory. And I, I ended up in my car. My, my clothes were lining the sidewalk. I was like in my car, like crying. Oh. Like, I was like, I don't know what the fuck to do. So I decided to call my dad and, and like, it was just like this voice. And he's like, he was like a sleeper and he was like three in the morning. He's like, what's up? And I was like, Hey dad. And he's like, what's up? I was like, can I come home? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. yeah yeah and like i just i don't know like it's just like yeah. that kind of moment you know it's very
0: yeah it's like uh that story tells me that Chaz probably had a hard time staying yeah so bitter toward toward his death yeah, you know? yeah. even though like that's what was in him like it probably hurt him to be that way too yeah
1: yeah and i think uh <laughs> the the character of royal kind of like fucks with me like on like a very personal level because like mm. I, just, I just want to feel negatively toward him and like yeah. there's like this rebellious spirit where like oh no fuck parents but like he's a really relatable character you're like We're all assholes. (laughs) Like, and there's that line, like uh, the son of a bitch line. What is it? Can't somebody. Oh yeah. Yeah. One of the best lines in the movie. Yeah. What is it?
0: Um, can't somebody be a shit their whole life and try to repair the damage?
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And that is like, so fucking human. Like you can miss that one, you know, you can miss that line so easily, Mm -hmm. but that is like some really human shit that like, fuck, that is like realness. That is like fucking realness. Um, Um,
0: I would I would want I I would love to talk about what the wardrobes mean. I, I think
1: uh Yeah, let's do it. I think that like covers basically what the movie's about. I don't wanna get too yeah. deep into that, so let's just like go on to like everything else.
0: Yeah, so wardrobes. Um let's start with Richie, you know, yeah. the, the sunglasses suit, sweatbands, sweatbands. Um uh I'm gonna take one of his Props in, as, as an example, the Bloody Mary. Like uh, you you notice that yeah. he's, he's holding the Bloody Mary in a lot of scenes. There's even one where um, he's got Ari and Uzi on either side of him, and they're they're at the dinner table. And he's got a piece of chocolate cake and also a Bloody Mary next to him for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also just really weird that he carries around uh, a pepper shaker to yeah. like spruce up his Bloody Mary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I wanted to just kind of touch again on the wardrobes that. Um, the, the the radical change in in wardrobe I think is significant for a lot of characters in this movie mm-hmm. or you know staying with Richie for a second you know the the pivotal like suicide scene um, shaving his hair off and and shaving you know shaving his beard off yeah um, I think that's that's significant and 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 Mordecai ties into that um, Margot she's got that consistent like Outfit from when she was a kid, like mm-hmm. through adulthood, the fur coat, the eyeshadow, the haircut, <laughs> the uh, Lacoste dresses, and um, like that—that's just what. What's really interesting to me, though, is Chaz does not have that, like like Richie and Margot, that they have the same like outfit when mm-hmm. like, when they're kids and when they're adults. Yeah, like kind of symbolizing this—I don't know—kind of like arrested development. Yeah, and but Chaz doesn't have that, you know, mm-hmm. like when he's a kid, he's wearing the suit and tie. Yeah. There is a flashback um, in the graveyard scene where he's suing Royal yeah. and it's, and it's Ben Stiller in the suit and tie yeah. as an adult suing uh, Royal <laughs> and getting him disbarred and all that. Yeah. Um, I think like Richie with the like catastrophic traumatic event, mm-hmm. it could be his wife's death. Yeah. You know, it makes me wonder like, does he put on the red track suit after his wife's death?
1: Yeah. You know? And I think, um, I, I forgot where I heard this, but there was a theory that like he, he uses that to like easily identify like his kids. Oh, and, yeah. Find his kids. Yeah. In the crowd. Like, yeah. Oh, there you are. Your red right. track suit. Like there they are. Yeah. Like, right. and, and like, you know, plus like they're probably like the more simple explanation Like he's always ready to like run. Um, also like he's probably denying who he was as a kid and that's why he's not wearing the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think there's so many ways to read into that, but regardless of that, that might be my least favorite aspect of this movie is that one choice to have him in those... In the red tracksuit? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's like almost a little too kitschy, you know? Yeah, yeah, Like, I think that's my one gripe with this movie. It's a very small one, and I think it works to a certain extent, and yeah, there's a character there, but it's, like, as far as, like, criticisms about, like, his style being distracting, that is, that a, is a, bit distracting. a small detail in this movie that is distracting for me.
0: Especially at Royal's funeral, where he's wearing him, him and Arya News, are wearing
1: yeah, yeah, that's like really <laughs> kitschy, really cutesy, shit. yeah. Um, and
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, so Eli Cash, too, um, yeah, wearing the same, like, oh, the yes. same exact Indian face paint, yeah. When they're fighting with uh, baby guns as yeah. kids yeah he's wearing that same face paint. face paint when he's about to crash into the car yeah or crash in, crash the car into the side of the building
1: I, I love uh, this detail um, of when they're looking through Margot's like dossier or whatever mm. I don't know if that's the word for it um, oh I think it works yeah sure <laughs> um, that when they get to Eli's part that he's not dressed like he is the rest of the movie he's in oh, a suit. Yeah. He's yeah. in a suit on the subway and that, gives, glasses. and that gives you an idea that Eli just always, he just like picks up things mm-hmm. and like just tries to be that thing, you know? Like this is like a phase. Like he, he's a guy who goes through like several phases. I think Eli is a really fascinating character.
0: Eli's the guy that always wanted to be a tenant bone. Yeah.
1: Right? But he's just like, he does this, you know? He's like constantly searching for who he wants to be or, or who he needs to be. And I think... Um, Do you think...
0: He goes off the deep end when he hooks up with Margot, and, and, and like, it's, I'm in, I'm a ton and bomb now.
1: Yeah. I think it's something like that. Yeah. It goes way off the deep end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it drives him fucking nuts. Um, just the details in the Eli scenes are fucking hilarious. Mm -hmm. Like his apartment, like his apartment, obviously the paintings are like really fucking disturbing, but in the background in the next room, he has like a whole grow going on of weed. Like there's like weed plants in the next room.
0: And, and a detail that I did not pick up until we did this podcast. Yeah. Um, the mountain of porn. Yeah. In his apartment when, uh, uh, Richie goes to confront him about, um, the letter that, you know, um, he told Richie that, or no, he told Eli that he was in love with Margo through the letter. He goes to the apartment and yeah. him about it. um, Eli goes to pour a drink in the next room and in the foreground, there's this like huge stack stack of porn, porn So yeah. I never noticed the mescaline scene. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah that's yeah. hilarious. Um, Eli, is, Eli might be my favorite character in this, in, in this movie. I think yeah. he's like funniest. <laughs> like I think he, he might have all the best jokes. And I think Owen Wilson just has like this really innate sense of timing. And he, he fucking hits it every time I will watch any movie with like an Owen Wilson and like, this is a terrible thing to bring up, but like, like a testament to his power, like Owen Wilson tried to kill himself, and nobody right. talks about that. Yeah, <laughs> like he was his career just like, yeah, he like yeah. he's just like such a presence that like we were able just to like breeze right by that. Like, right.
0: like those, those couple of years where we didn't, didn't see much of Owen Wilson.
1: Yeah. Uh, was, but
0: but like, I, I think
1: like a, a, a lesser actor or something like that would be like the defining thing about them. Right. <laughs> it's just like, nah. that is true. I forgot all yeah. About that. Yeah. Which is yeah. like fucking depressing, but also kind of an interesting point. <laughs> um, I I also wanted to bring up uh, Pagoda and Dudley mm. who I think are kind of analogs for each other in a certain way, but they're kind of like, they're like the trophy to these two men. And they also show you two different types of fatherly love where Royal treats Pagoda like a pet or, or or like uh, this person that he needs to exert power over, you know, it's like, Royal needs to control somebody, like mm-hmm. through manipulation. But for Pagoda, he just tells Pagoda what to do. You know, Royal leaves the house and he immediately rats out Pagoda. He's like, "Well, yeah, <laughs> right yeah.
0: yeah." And he, he takes it in such a like a
1: like a dickish, like yeah. passive aggressive kind of dickish way. Yeah, yeah,
0: Like he's like, "Oh, I guess we're back out on the
1: street." Again, yeah. Right, you're like, Pagoda? oh, you knew about this. <laughs> That's like why'd you sell me out? Yeah. God, could have played it cool. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But. He just, like, he needs that person there to exert power over him. And after Royal hits, like, his character arc, he's able to let go of Pagoda. And mm. he tells Ethel, oh, take back Pagoda, will you? Okay. Um, it's, it's it's like this, he doesn't want to assert his power anymore, you know? Yeah. And on the other end of the spectrum is Raleigh with Dudley. Mm. And Raleigh, this is a character, Raleigh's trying to help Dudley, you know? Mm. And I think Dudley is kind of, like, this this model of... Emotional incapability that runs through all the other uh, characters, but Dudley has like an issue, like um, it's Asperger's or something, you know? And, but, but, but all, all the other characters in the movie are as unable to, to express their feelings as, as Dudley is, (laughs) which is hilarious. And I think the, the best scene that kind of captures this is when uh, Margot runs up to Dudley in the emergency room and she goes, where is he? And he's like, Who? Mm. and he has blood all over his shirt like this is exactly what all the characters are doing in the movie like they're just not really paying attention to each other it's
0: the same level of obliviousness that like ethel has with margo in the tub
1: exactly precisely and this happens throughout the entire movie between characters like this misunderstanding or miscommunication Mm -hmm. and it's dudley's world and that's the name of the book at the end like truly the world of the royal tenenbaums is like dudley's world like oh that's great yeah
0: um yeah so when when uh Royal, I'm, you just reminded me of this—the this scene with Ethel, where Royal gives her gives her the divorce. Yeah, um, and I, I I still go back to the, the wardrobes. Um, Royal transforms when he's after he starts wearing the the uh, elevator operator uniform. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's that's when he's he's transformed. Um, he gives Ethel the divorce. Says, "Hey, take pack Pagoda," uh, and. <laughs> the arc is complete. You yeah.
1: Know, like. Yeah. That's kind of the moment. And then, yeah. you know, he's able to die like in the arms of Chaz, mm-hmm. which is also a fucking beautiful moment. I love that. It's in a montage and it happens so quickly, but it's, it's really satisfying to see.
0: Yeah. And narrated by Alec Baldwin. Yeah. So,
1: and the, as far as the relationship between them, I think about the Dalmatian mice and the Dalmatian dog. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what's going on there, but I think it's, um, I don't know. Like it, it's,
0: it's great. I, I hadn't noticed it before. Yeah, but, it's like this uh, thing
1: where like this is what Chaz wanted but was like afraid to ask for, so he made it himself, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and it kind of and, like... And the Dalmatian dog is a gift to Chaz to replace... Yeah. You know, and that's, that's that's when they have that heavy moment. Yeah, uh, and, and, yeah, and and his dog that he had, I forgot the name of it. Uh, uh, Buckley. Buckley. Yeah, He's like representative of this trauma of losing his wife. You know, Buckley mm-hmm. was like part of this accident too. And he's able to let go of this and receive this love from his father, you know? Yeah. I think pretty significant, pretty interesting, a really small detail that I noticed the last time around that I watched it. Um, I also, we needed, we said we would do it. I need to bring up our Cormac McCarthy connection.
0: Oh man, what are we doing with this podcast? We're just playing like <laughs> yeah. one, one degree of separation with
1: Cormac McCarthy on every one of these. Somebody send this to Cormac <laughs> McCarthy. We're doing it. Yeah. Um, but Eli, uh, Eli's style is based off the style of Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like pretty obvious with the Spanish and the frisk dusk light. That's yeah, like very yeah. Cormac. Um, we just had to, we just had to drop that in there. Yeah. Um, he's,
0: uh, I, I did see that in, um, uh, I think it was, a Owen Wilson interview somewhere that he, he used Cormac McCarthy as the inspiration for Eli Cash. Yeah. Um, which kind of. It's like, uh, and you see
1: him affecting this thing of yeah, like the, yeah. the, we talked about this in the Paris, Texas episode where he's affecting this thing where he's like romanticizing this idea of the frontiersman. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the style that Eli's like trying to affect. you know?
0: Right. Yeah. 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 And it, it, I think it's he's, like, he's definitely a spoof. Yeah. You know? he, yeah. He's, he's lampooning yeah. uh,
1: that, that a bit. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really funny. Um, I also wanted to like talk about favorite quotes cause when this movie came out, it was kind of quoting this incessantly mm. like this one has so many gems but i i want to talk about i don't want to talk about it i'm just going to drop a few of my favorites okay. i have three one is i know you asshole <laughs> <laughs> i know you asshole. yeah royal pointing down uh fucking eli from the window what's that jackass doing i know you asshole there's a detail in the special features that that is actually a, a Danny Glover quote from another movie. I heard that. Yeah, 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 yeah that's which I really love. cool. Yeah, um I mentioned this already but the Dudley where is he who I really love that. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's just like I don't know, the, the like the chuckle quality, you know, it, it gets a chuckle for me every time and then uh, Wildcat. Wildcat. <laughs> Wildcat. <laughs> I'm going to go cool. <laughs> like, I don't know how many times I've randomly dropped that into conversation when I was like spacing out like, when somebody caught me spacing out. I'd just be like, wow. Get
0: a <laughs> um, yeah. Going back to the Cormac McCarthy reference. Um, there's a couple of things that are like, obviously the, the connection now that you know about it. Yeah. Um, him uh, reading from his novel, you know, the Spanish in there, uh, <laughs> but also in that interview, Um, the interviewer is like wildcat, not a success. Why? Uh, and, and, uh, Eli Cash is like, well, it was kind of written in this obsolete vernacular, (laughs) which is Cormac McCarthy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This thing, we talked about this pulling out like centuries old dead language and Mm -hmm. put it in this book that, yeah, obviously a reference to Cormac. And I love the idea that Wes Anderson is just like fucking poking at Cormac, like (laughs) this guy. You think he's ever seen this movie? I, I'd like to think so. Like, yeah. I hope so. And I hope that he laughed at it. Or right. at least hope he picked up on those details. We didn't get the lawyers involved. <laughs> um, um, let's do something that everyone's going to hate and let's rate some Wes Anderson movies. All right. Um, let's do top five. You want to do top five? Uh, all right. Or you want to do the whole thing? I let's think do, Let's do Letterman top 10. Top 10? Um, I don't know. How many does have he have? Does has he, has he have 10? Even, I think
0: he has 10. Does he? Oh, I don't know. Okay, so this is, we're really testing our, our knowledge if we can even name well 10. Um, Yeah, I think, well. Uh, for me, um, I think I'm going to put Rushmore, number one. Okay. Um, Grand Budapest Hotel, maybe number two. Okay. Then the Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. I might put... Um, the Darjeeling limited next hmm. life aquatic with Steve Zissou. Yeah. That's number five.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, maybe Isle of Dogs. Mm-hmm. I think
1: I'm at six. We can do nine. Cause I think do French nine. dispatches is 10th.
0: Okay. All right. What am I missing here? I, I don't want to place bottle rocket yet. I think there's probably, okay. Moonrise kingdom. Okay. Do that next. Am I at seven? I think I'm gonna do Bottle Rocket next, <laughs> and uh, what am I missing?
1: Um, let's see. So there's Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Bombs, Life Aquatic, Darjeeling Limited, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise oh, Kingdom. I can't
0: believe I missed Fantastic. Is that, that the one you fantastic missed? Fantastic Mr. Did Fox. you get Alad Dogs too? I did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Mr. Fox would be up there for me. Mr. It, Fox is up there for me. It would be middle. It would be middle of the pack, maybe. Okay. Maybe. That one's
1: right like, under Z. That I one's think. fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oddly enough, Life Aquatic used to be my favorite. But I think that was me being a little pretentious I and mean, being like, <laughs> you just don't get it. Um, but I, I do like the movie, but on it like the last time I watched it, I was pretty bored.
0: <laughs> I think if it was a half hour shorter, it would be a would Yeah. Be
1: great. Yeah. Um There's a couple things that don't work for me. Maybe we'll talk about it at some point. It'd be cool to talk about that movie because I think it's really interesting and also very emotional, but not in the same way that Tenenbaums is. But as far as rating them, um, I am going to put Grand Budapest first because I think Grand Budapest is his funniest movie. And I, I don't think many people would agree with me that it's one of his better ones. I think I would. Well, I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is why we're doing this together. Yeah. <laughs> but I really want to hear what people think about this. Um, I don't think a lot of people would put it. Uh, yeah, slide into our DMs, guys. You know, yeah, let, I let, want to let hear about this. Yeah, <laughs> and Not in a contentious way. I'm not trying to find anybody. Maybe I am, whatever. Um, okay, so I'm going to say Grand Budapest. I'm going to say Darjeeling Limited.
0: Nice, you put that way up there.
1: I love that movie. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, Royal Tenenbaums. Um, what else? Where are we at? Have you said Rushmore yet? I have not said Rushmore. Oh my gosh. Royal Tenenbaums, then Rushmore. Um, Isle of Dogs, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, and then Bottle Rocket. Okay. I think that's my rating.
0: Yeah. We agree that, Bottle Rocket deserves to be down at the yeah
1: level. yeah, but I think it's the same thing as I said with like the Coens. It's just like his their least good. I yeah. can still watch Bottle Rocket, um, and and enjoy it. I can probably watch it probably several times. I would, and um, I especially like that there's a like a you know like a a, a brown woman in it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, represent like I love that that's included in there. I think Wes Anderson like uh, often gets criticized for being too white, which yes, but also you know. He does other things. Um, I, I think that covers it. I, I do want to talk just like briefly. The last thing we'll do is like talk about just like the iconic scenes and like the things that really stick out.
0: Yeah. Any, and, any, uh, yeah, anything, anything that sticks out that we n- haven't
1: mentioned. To me, the most iconic scene in this movie is Margot stepping off the Green Line bus.
0: Oh yeah, with the uh, these days. The, yeah. The Nico song. Can
1: you think of anything more iconic in this movie than that? No. Okay.
0: Well, I, I, anytime I hear that song, it's like, I, that's what
1: happens in my mind. Exactly. And that song, off the bus. That, I'm not going to lie. That was the first time I that song had entered my life and Me it's too. been in my life ever since.
0: Me too. By the way, like I get, or like I started watching his movies as a teenager and yeah. that, that, you know, famously that's when you start to, you know, like make your bonds with music as, as a teen. Right. And yeah. Like a lot of music was introduced to me. Very formative. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Wes yeah. Anderson really did it for me. I mean,
0: and and this soundtrack in this movie, you know, you've got like lots of British, British. And yeah, Asian. It's fucking great. You got the Beatles, the Ramones, you got the Rolling Stones. Yeah.
1: Um, and compiled with everything that happened in Rushmore, as far as music goes, like yeah. that's already like, just like a fucking wealth of music that you can just break into. Yeah. I think Wes Anderson has been just a huge influence. My personal taste, um, I I love when people talk about him. I love people's takes on his movies. Mm -hmm. I I just love the conversation surrounding Wes Anderson.
0: Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And as far as like, um, other stuff that uh, sticks out that we haven't mentioned, we didn't talk a whole lot about Bill Murray. I think, um, so Bill, Bill Murray, I think financed or helped finance Rushmore. And it was like, you know, he was the main Mm -hmm. uh, counterpart to Max Fisher in that movie. Yeah. And, um, I, I think it's like one of the first times that he plays a, a role of that type that, you know, that's very against his his typical um, like role that he
1: plays. That's probably true. Um, yeah. I mean, especially from the early days when he was doing like mostly comedy, like Caddyshack and stuff. Yeah. That, yeah, that is it, very it true. But like when did, a, when did uh, Lost in Translation come out?
0: Um, um, early 2000s, some
1: yeah it's gotta be right 2003 so it's after this so yeah this is probably one of the first things he did against type um, um yeah I mean I don't I don't know what more to say about him than you know the deadly connection stuff like obviously it's a great performance really fucking funny character um my, I think my favorite thing he does in this is when he said well I could just die and oh, then yeah. he picks up like the cracker and he's he like it doesn't even, he can't even get it to his mouth he puts it back down <laughs> i really i I love that i love that little moment he's like he just like loses like uh, all his will like his will to live just like is drained from in that moment he's like can't even get food in his mouth and he puts it back down and it's hilarious yeah it's really funny he's just like devastated throughout this movie he's like so despondent especially like like even in the emergency room which is like another i mean classic scene about the suicide letter well was it dark um
0: like that should go down in the like greatest mic drops of history where he's like, can I have a cigarette yeah. and a light? Au revoir.
1: Yeah. Yeah. so <laughs> good. Yeah that, yeah. that stood out to me too. He is awkwardly holding the cigarette like between. He doesn't, his, he doesn't know which end to yeah. suck from. <laughs> like, it's like between all his fingers. Yeah. I love that shit. Um, but yeah, man, we did it. Nice. If I yeah. did it, that is our conversation on the Royal Tenenbaums. I'm so happy. We got to talk about Wes Anderson. I fucking love this movie bunch of people love this movie can't wait to hear people's opinions mm-hmm. people's complaints people tell are, us
0: what we got wrong yeah
1: i mean there's going to be thoughts there's going to be thoughts about yeah. this people love this movie and i think um people are going to want to listen to this because people love this movie so much so thank you for listening we'll see you next time what'd you say hmm? what i didn't say anything when? Right now?
0: I'm sorry, don't listen to me. I'm on mescaline. I've been spaced out all day. Did you say you're on mescaline? I did
1: indeed. Very much so. That was our conversation about the Royal Tenenbaum. Thanks for listening. That was a lot more difficult than it sounded. Thanks. The voices you heard today was myself, Sierra Gonzalez, and my dear friend Patrick Kelly. In today's episode, I forgot to list the Life Aquatic in my listings for Wes Anderson Films. I want to say it's probably about number seven. Nobody cares. Follow us on Instagram. Just type in at film slobbery. That's F-I-L-M-S-L-O-B-B-E-R-Y, and we'll be around subscribe and rate us on our show page wherever you listen feel free to share encouragement or disappointment show suggestions tell us what to do next we'd love to hear it next week we're talking about rachel getting married what you're listening to now is a track called that's what's up recorded for the show by randy Flores. go ahead and enjoy that we'll see you next time